celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Roman, Montana. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth to the arena of ideas. This is yours truly, Brian Chilton, joined alongside the one and only cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo, and uh, representing the Pacific Northwest up in Montana, down here in the southeastern United States and North Carolina. We are coast to coast, and uh, just uh, praising the Lord for the opportunity to uh, come together and have this podcast. And, you know, I was just thinking about, Curtis, uh, just the other day, how far the podcast has come. Uh, I remember when we first started this venture, uh, which I was new to podcasting whenever I first started. I didn't know much about it. But uh, we started with a telephone, telephone mm-hmm. by the by the microphone, and then we uh, gravitated to uh, get a an audio bus where we had uh, several different channels to go through, plug into that, and, and now we're actually able to see one another, uh, right. the with the uh, with Zoom. Amazing. It's yep. it's amazing. It, it it truly is. And so we're grateful and thankful. Now actually able to come to people live. That's a brand new thing this season. Yeah. Uh, being yeah. Live, uh with uh with the individuals. So we are just excited about what God's doing at Bellator Christie and what he's going to continue to do. Uh just a couple quick announcements, a little few housekeeping items before we get started and turn the podcast over to Curtis. Uh just as a reminder coming out coming up here very soon. Uh, I have a book that will be released called Conversations About Heaven. Uh, this is a uh, very, this is a book I've been writing, writing for really a few years now. Uh, I was in the middle of dissertation. I was in the middle of other, some other projects and wasn't able to uh, really get the thing completed. But now that I'm after the post PhD, post dissertation, I, I was able to really commit a lot of time to it and, and getting it finished. We've got a few little things remaining. We have to get ready and set for the book, but it is nearly ready to send to the publisher. So we'll give you more uh, updates about the publication date for when that comes out. It's going through uh, resource uh, uh, publications and imprint of Whiff and Stock, same, the same publishers who uh, published uh, Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics uh, for us. Uh, was it in 2019, I think it was, when that came out. So that'll be coming out here in a few months' time. We'll give you more information as we have it. Uh, also coming up in 2024, 20, uh, we have a, a new book that we are writing together as a team. First time we've ever done this as a team at Bellator Christie. Uh, we're going to have a book on creationism. Uh, I, we're, uh, we're going to have, give you more information on this book as uh, time progresses. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Also, the Lord laid on my heart, uh, to do a, a little brief thing during the summertime. Uh, we're going to call this, uh, this just a few hand, handful of podcasts, very short podcasts we're going to record over the summer. Uh, we're going to probably, I'll have probably have it ready to go. Uh, here in the next month or so, and then have it scheduled to uh, publish during the summer. But we're going to call this Bellator Christie Overtime. This is going to be anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes at the max 
just small, brief podcasts dealing with uh, certain certain issues uh, that have come up over the course of time that need to be addressed that we quite frankly don't have time to comment on uh, on the regular podcast. So that's going to come up between season six and season seven. Uh, that'll be coming up over the summertime. They won't be aired live. Uh, you'll only be able to catch this on the audio apps of the Bellator Christie podcast. So if you haven't subscribed yet, be sure to uh, subscribe to the Bellator Christie podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Uh, I, I think I mentioned iHeartRadio. That's one of them. Uh, so, so that it will exclusively be found on the audio apps of the Bellator Christie podcast. So just to let you know that's coming up over the summertime. Uh, just a handful of podcasts at that. Uh, tonight we're starting a, a series within the series of soteriology as we look at the, uh, main tenets of, uh, controversy, uh, surrounding Calvinism and non-Calvinism. And as, uh, Curtis prayed, as we always have a prayer before the podcast, uh, we want to let you know that, uh, we're going to get into some very deep controversial waters over the course of the next month. But our goal is not to open cans of worms or throw grenades or anything of the sort. We want to show you why we hold the convictions that we do uh, from Scripture. And even tonight, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. Uh, we're, it's going to be like a machine, machine gun going off with different Scriptures just to show you why uh, we hold certain things to be the way they are. So uh, th- that's coming up tonight and the upcoming podcasts uh, in this month and the next month ahead. And then believe it or not, uh, we'll be starting our final theology series coming up here in, in uh, probably mid-March, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So this season is really rolling by. So enough from me. Let's turn it over now to Curtis Evelo. Yeah, that's this season has zoomed by. I mean, like, wow, it went by. <laughs> I used a reference this weekend when I was when I was preaching. Uh, I, I was like, "We're going to be taking a sixty thousand foot view, almost like we're from a SR seventy one Blackbird." <laughs> we're, we're zooming by by a lot of scripture, and so yeah, it was it was pretty funny. I I got a few of the few of the guys that uh, one of them is a former pilot, helicopter pilot, so his. He started kind of smiling when I said that, so that was pretty fun. So, Brian, how uh, how cold did it get uh, last week for you guys? Not bad. It it okay. uh, got down to maybe in the maybe thirties, maybe upper twenties, but it really wasn't bad at all. Oh, okay. Did you guys get yeah, slammed? No, we we were all right. We did get a little cooled, but um, I heard that uh, that the East Coast was getting a, a kind of a an Arctic blast. So thankfully that if well, thankfully for us, not thankfully for them that hit really north <laughs> of us. Uh, well, I have some family who live up in New Hampshire and upstate New Hampshire. This is even ab- above where they are. I think Mount Washington, if I'm not mistaken, they had a windshield yeah. factor of a, of negative one twenty eight. It seemed like I heard overheard someone say that, uh, it was so bad when they walked outside, it felt like a hot poker was stabbing their skin. Just as soon as they walked mm-hmm. out, they said they mm-hmm. went right back in. <laughs> yep. That's cold enough to freeze a woolly mammoth. Yeah. 
Uh, all right. So I know let's it's get definitely into this. Uh, it's definitely cold enough to uh, to freeze a woolly brine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So let's go ahead and jump into this, Brian. So um, the episode is uh, the, the the depravity of man, total or radical. So let's just go to the first question here. What do we mean by human depravity? Human depravity speaks of the fallen condition of humanity. Now, sometimes I want to say man or mankind. Just understand that when I say man or mankind, I'm speaking of of everyone. I'm speaking of human nature. Human nature, absolutely. Uh, and so, if if I were to use that, just understand what I mean by that. So, it's a, the fallen condition of hum, humanity of mankind. Depravity sp- means that human beings are are fallen and are consequently corrupt and subject to decay. And this decay can speak to both the corruption of the physical and spiritual domain. Charles Ryrie explains that depravity indicates that humanity, and I quote, fails the test of pleasing God. And as such, depravity impacts every facet of human nature and their faculties. It also indicates that humanity is unable to save itself or even to appear righteous in the sight of God. And it's important to note, I heard a, uh, a Bible teacher say last, I think it was last week, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that the fruit of the Spirit, when we talk about love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these are things that come by the Spirit abiding within us. These are not things that we can produce ourselves. It's something that comes as as an outflow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, yes, to a degree, we can all have love. We can all have joy to a degree. But to true, truly manifest that spiritual fruit that Paul's talking about, we must have the Holy Spirit in our lives. Hmm. Uh, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> Let's go on to the second one here then. So, how does the depravity of man impact the way we view sin and salvation? I want to bring out a book here, and um, let me see if I can. I've got I'm in another room. I uh, was in my office, and the problem is, which tonight wouldn't matter, but uh, but uh, a lot of nights, uh, my son's getting, he's get, trying to get him in bed and, and things of that nature. It, it kind of echoes in the office, so I kind of moved into uh, – one of the other rooms in the house, but I want to share with you a book here uh, that is very good. Now, there are some things I'm going to critique tonight uh, in the book, but I want to just say, and by the way, you can see my Thor figure back in the back. He's holding his hammer. It's not the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> but uh, it's by Adam Harwood. It's called, it's a thick book at that, Christian Theology, Biblical, Historical, and Systematic. This is a very good book. Uh, now, there are a few things I'm going to critique as he, as he uh, handles Thomas Aquinas that I don't really quite agree with him on, uh, because now Thomas Aquinas, he wrote something like 15,000 pages, okay? So he's one you've got to study conscientiously and very carefully, or he can very, he can very easily be misunderstood. But like I said, a very thick book. You can you know catch this. I think it's on Kindle, if I'm not mistaken. And I know it's definitely on Lagos. And so um, so it's a great, great book. I highly recommend it. But in that book, Harwood talks about 
uh, a few models as it, it deals with providence. Now, we say you say, well, wait a minute, divine providence, what's that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, it actually has a lot to do with it. The way we answer the question of human depravity directly interacts with the models of divine providence. And so in other words, are we responsible for what we do? And furthermore, are we responsible for how we respond to God? Or is has everything been pre-planned, predetermined where we couldn't do anything to the otherwise? So when we talk about the nuances of salvation, we talk about these distinctions in, in theology, it's very important to understand how God interacts with humanity or mankind and and uh, how we can or if we can respond to the grace of God. So as we talk about depravity, total or radical, this actually directly impacts the way we view sin and salvation. So we talk about depravity of man. We're also needing to understand the providence of God. So there are four models that he gives. Now, I think two of these models could be blended. And and I've got a little mild critique for Harwood in one certain aspect, but overall he does a fantastic job. There are four, there are four models of how we view God or how we view providence. And again, this directly relates to the idea of depravity and the way we view sin and salvation. Divine determinism is one. Divine guidance is two. Middle knowledge is three. And open theism is four. Divine determinism is the viewpoint that God decrees. Sometimes this is called decretal theology, that God decrees and causes all future events, both good and bad. God does not permit events to occur. Rather, he causes them or decrees them to occur as they do. Now, here's where I'm going to critique uh, Harwood in one aspect. He argued that Aquinas held this view, and I disagree with that. Uh, Aquinas believed that God is the first cause of all things, but he also believed that that free beings served as secondary agents and could respond to the to the first movement of God. So, in other words, think of it this way: what Aquinas seems to be suggesting is that God's grace is given to everyone as the first cause. And then individuals, as, as that grace impacts them, they as secondary agents, secondary free agents, have the opportunity to respond to that grace first given by God or to reject that grace that was first given by God. In that sense, they're secondary agents. So I would agree with, I would disagree with him that Aquinas held this view. But most certainly we see uh, some indications of this in Augustine of Hippo, but more strongly uh, in in the views of Calvin and even to a degree Luther and some of the reformers, uh, not all of them, but but some of them held this view. So uh, I would disagree with him on Aquinas because I don't think Aquinas held that because I I don't have it pulled up. But in the Summa Theologica, I can show you the, the place where Aquinas even says that the law doesn't even make sense. It becomes nonsensical if people don't have the free will to to uh, live according to the law or to reject the commandments of God. So I mean, Aquinas strongly defended free, the free freedom of the will. Uh, so again, Aquinas is not in that camp, and that's why I consider Thomism to be a non-Calvinist uh, theology, theological system. Although it could be blended with 
a, a Calvin, a, a far more strong determinism uh, in mm-hmm. some instances, but I don't think Aquinas in and of himself would be a determinist at all. So that's divine determinism. In other words, the viewpoint that God decrees and causes all events. Now, the problem with this viewpoint, as we've mentioned already on the podcast, is that's well and good when everything is is good. But mm-hmm. what do you do when evil events take place? What do you do when someone does something evil? Did God decree that too? Well, according to divine determinism, he did. And so in that case, in that instance, uh, a person is not really ultimately responsible for his or her sin. It comes down to the decree of God. And so therein, I think you see where the problem is as far as it it relates to human responsibility. Now, the second viewpoint that uh, Harwood advocates, and rightfully so, is called divine guidance. This is the view that God guides and directs all events through direct causation, permissive will, and complete knowledge of all free creatures. Harwood uses the term innate knowledge on pages uh, 32 and 233, to refer to God's knowledge of all past, present, and future events without acquiring the knowledge at hand. It's just that he already knew it. Uh, It doesn't impact the freedom of an individual to choose X versus Y, but it's just that God fully knew what was going to happen. In this model, God causes some events directly. He permits other events to happen that he didn't directly cause, and he uses even bad events and circumstances to bring a greater good in the end. Interestingly, Harwood argues, and I would agree, that this was the viewpoint held by the church for the first four centuries of its history and was also the view held by C.S. Lewis. Um, Now, middle knowledge, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because you already know this. We have a huge series we did on middle knowledge. It's directly linked with Molinism. It's the belief that God holds knowledge of what free creatures would choose given certain circumstances Middle knowledge is uh, affirms a form of Thomistic causality while also adopting the overall divine guidance model as well. In fact, I think that you could say that middle knowledge fits in the whole aspect of divine guidance. But because of the popularity of Molinism, I understand him him uh, segmenting it out. Interestingly, Harwood doesn't uh, disprove or doesn't. Uh, doesn't uh, discard middle knowledge. He just says that he hasn't fully adopted it. He is a divine guidance person uh, or a provisionist person, you might say, uh, but he hasn't really got on the bandwagon of middle knowledge, although he says it fits in very well with divine guidance, which I would also agree. Open theism is also the idea that God guides all things for his intended purposes without determining any of the creature's actions Additionally, many open theists affirm God's inability to know future events. That is, they, many open theists believe that God, he, he has a good probability, good idea of what's going to happen, but he doesn't know with certainty uh, about the future possibilities or events. Now, this, this causes a lot of problems in my mind uh, because God, for God to be God, God must know everything. And so I think there are some major problems with open theism. But there again, I, I would agree with them that middle knowledge fits in divine guidance, uh, what some people may even call provisionism. And I, I would also agree with him that uh, this was the viewpoint held by the church for the first four centuries. But in these other models, divine guidance, middle knowledge, and open theism, 
we see that individuals are responsible for their actions. Uh, but the problem is when it comes to sin and salvation and the depravity of humanity, uh, we understand that human beings cannot save themselves. Um, and so as we go through this tonight, we've got to ask ourselves, ourselves the question, which fits the context of Scripture while also contemplating the fact that the question of why is it that some people are saved and others are not. There's a lot to it. Uh, there's a lot to it, but hopefully this gives you kind of an idea of the landscape that's out there. Hmm. Yeah, this is going to get this is going to get interesting. I the divine guidance um, view and you know I, I I hold more to that than than you know Molinism. You and I've had that discussion. We've talked oh, sure. about it, and yeah. I you know I I kind of hold in that in that uh, uh, view a little bit. Um, more than than some but um yeah the other you know if direct determinism if why have the guardrails on the highway if we can't drive <laughs> off the side of the road that's right so well and the important thing here to note as well is i think that when it comes to middle knowledge i think ultimately we would both agree that god knows the free responses of individuals. Mm-hmm. He he knows. Sure. Now, now mental knowledge can get into the whole idea of counterfactuals and things of that nature, which gets really complicated really quickly. But I think regardless, if you're just strictly provisionist or if you're a Molinist, we're both really in the same camp because we believe yeah. God knows what free creatures will choose to do which essentially means we we believe the same thing. It's just a few nuances that we might uh, have differences on, but all in all, it's it's within the same camp. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the distinctions between the Calvinist concept of total depravity and the non-Calvinist notion of radical depravity? Now, we didn't go into, Brian... Um, a definition between total and radical. We didn't really go into that. I probably should have asked for that, but if you feel like you want to talk about that, we can, otherwise we can cover it some other time, but um, yeah, back to well, the question. Yeah. I, actually, I'll go ahead and answer it as we, as we go through. Uh, okay. Because I think it is important to understand very briefly, very briefly said total depravity means that. That every every aspect of humanity, every aspect of humanity is depraved. Now, total depravity can get into the whole notion that it impacts the way whether or not a person can freely respond to God's grace. And so there's the question of does it impact our imagio day being made in the image of God? That's the question. And I don't think that those who hold strongly to this view have really given a satisfactory answer to this without going adopting something more comparable to radical depravity. So let, let me let me let me let me answer what these things are. Looking at the previous models, those who hold to divine determinism do so in part because they believe that human depravity is so severe that a person could not respond to God's grace in any capacity. Sin has effectually incapacitated man's ability to know God or even to hear God. That is why Calvinists call it total depravity, 
because sin has totally depraved an individual of any opportunity to respond to God or even to hear God uh, in and of their own human capacity. Now, in contrast, non-Calvinists hold to what is often called radical depravity. Uh, Proponents of this view argue that sin has incapacitated humanity from saving itself. And now that is a that is a clear distinction we need to understand. Non-Calvinists also affirm and assert the notion that we cannot save ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. We are not Pelagians. Mm-hmm. We're not even say that, saying that we can keep ourselves in grace right. uh, by our actions as semi-Pelagians do. We are saying that it is only by God's grace that we are saved. And that we're just simply saying that that the depravity of our fallenness does not remove our image, our God-bearing image, that divine imprint in our lives. And when God's spirit speaks to our spirit, we have the freedom to respond to that spirit or to reject that spirit. Okay, it's a spiritual connection that's going on there, not a physical. So proponents of this view argue that sin has incapacitated humanity from saving itself. However, human fallenness has not removed God's image, God's imprint, and thereby has not eliminated the possibility that people can hear and respond to God even in their fallen state. Now, here's the question. As we look through some of these scriptures here in a few moments, the question is, is there evidence? Is there evidence in Scripture that a person was able to hear God and respond to God before they were saved? Does the Scripture seem to indicate that we can repent when we hear God's voice or or have God move upon our lives? That's a question that needs to be asked as we look through the Scriptures that we're going to cover here in a few moments. So, It's important to note that non-Calvinists do not assume that humans can save themselves. Neither do they believe that people can pursue God of their own accord. Rather, they believe that God, excuse me, rather they believe that people merely respond to the grace of God freely offered to them as they believe that God's will is to save everyone. Again, God is just like Thomas Aquinas said, God is the prime mover. He moves upon humanity. And we are secondary agents who can respond to God's grace or reject God's grace. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so um, are we going to do we want to adventure into those scriptures now or do you want me to go to the next question for that? Let's let's go ahead and go to the next question, because that's actually okay. going to be. Uh, not the next question, but the question after, because we've got a bunch of oh, scriptures that we're going to look at as we move forward. And, okay. and we'll have to hit that like a machine gun <laughs> and yep. go out from one to the other. <laughs> so how does the notion of free will play into this discussion? So the freedom of the human will is an important component of this discussion because it deals with whether a person can freely respond to God's grace. Remember, no one is arguing, neither the Calvinist or the non-Calvinist are arguing that a person can save themselves uh, or oneself. The point of contention is whether a person has the choice when responding to God's initial move of grace. Thus, even here, the Thomistic notion of causality is at play, as we mentioned a while ago. God is the prime mover. He moves in our lives. 
and then the secondary agent responds to God's first movement. Now, since we're talking theology here, as one would expect when we talk theology, there are different opinions on, on this. So there are four opinions when it comes to human freedom. Determinists believe that everything is predetermined. We see a fate with no freedom. Everything is fatalistic. You, you have no choice. So if you were destined to be saved, you're going to be saved. If you're destined to be condemned, you're going to be condemned. And there's nothing you can do about it either way. If you're one of the elect of God, praise God, celebrate. If you're not, well, so sorry, too bad, so sad. You didn't have an opportunity to get saved. See, that's just a, that's just, there's several problems with that uh, in my mind. And so, um, anyhow, moving on. One, one, word comes, hold, one word that comes up in my head is then why does God say repent? Therein is a problem. Therein is the problem. Now, compatibilists hold that human freedom corresponds with God's preconceived plan. So freedom acts within fate. Uh, so, so they believe that it's a little more deterministic, uh, but it still holds to, uh, it still holds to, this would be kind of comparable to what you'd call mild Calvinism. This is something along the lines of what you see in Greg Kokel and in his belief system. And he, cause he's even called himself a compatibilist, compatibilist. Uh, human freedom corresponds with God's preconceived plan. Everything's going to move according to the way God predetermined, but we still have our freedom corresponds with what God uh, predetermined. Now, in c- the concurrent view is that human beings have a, have a limited version of free will. That is, we there's some things that we can't we we can't choose otherwise, or we can't decide. In other words, we can't choose our own DNA. We can't choose where we're born. Right. Uh, things of that nature. However, God, and there may be even be passions and desires that we have a hard time overcoming uh, because of our sinful nature. Uh, some people are kind of predisposed to be to have more more problems with alcoholism, even though they have that freedom of the will to overcome it by God's grace. They still struggle more with certain things more than others do. This is what the concurrent beliefs. God knows the free choices of individuals and is able to work their choices together to bring out an ultimate end. And then full libertarians believe that, that people have the freedom to do almost anything. They wouldn't say everything, but almost anything. So this is kind of the landscape you see, uh, determinism, compatibilism, concurrent, uh, belief, and then full libertarians, uh, libertarian free will. These, this is the landscape you see when it comes to free will. Here again, when we talk about free will, the question is whether or not we have the freedom and capacity to respond to God's grace. Determinists will say no. Compatibilists will say yes to a very limited degree. Concurrence would say yes to a larger degree. And uh, libertarian free wills would say yes to all degrees, nearly all degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does the scripture suggest about human depravity and does it point uh, in one direction or another? So let me first of all say here, I'm going to pull up, I'm going to pull up our handy dandy Lagos Bible software, get our scripture ready here to go. And, um, and we will look at some scripture together. First of all, I want to take a look at uh, some of the passages of Scripture as it relates to 
the human depravity. And, and we're all going to admit the fact that our, our human nature has been impacted by sin to a great degree. But as we go through these scriptures, let's, let's take a look at the overall case that's being built. Okay, biblical theology must build our systematic theology. Uh, so, for instance, look at Mount Everest. A systematic theology is going to look at the entire mountain. It'll even see some of the peaks. I think K2 is a peak fairly close to, to Mount Everest, and it's going to take a look at the entire landscape, the entire thing together. Biblical theology is going to look at the smaller components within the mountain, maybe the communities roundabout, maybe the the, uh, the the type of rock that's found on the mountain, where the snow line is, uh, the altitude of the mountain, all these various details, it's going to look at that to a greater degree. So, so first and foremost, the question is, uh, how has uh, human depravity been impacted by uh, our sinful nature? And so, first of all, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians uh, yeah, Second Corinthians four four, um, and so Curtis, I'll go ahead and have you uh, read the scriptures here, if you will, um, yeah. for us as we, as we get going. The first thing we're going to see here is that our intelligence is blinded. Okay, uh, verse four. In their case, the God of this age, lowercase G, has oh your screen. Oh, has sorry. blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, Yahweh. So here again, we see that um, our intelligence has been impacted by our our sin. There's no way we can mm-hmm. save ourselves. Inte- intellectually speaking, uh, people are more uh, akin to worship things that are materialistic instead of something that's spiritual. And we see that our, even our mind is corrupted in Romans one twenty eight. Let's take a look at Romans one twenty eight. Okay, so Romans uh, one twenty eight verse twenty eight it says, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind, so that they do what is not right. So here again, the word corrupt is also the the word used for depravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sin will corrupt our mind it will uh it will erode even our sensibilities and the same is true for our emotions uh can we trust our emotions well not always let's take a look at titus 115 so verse 15 says to the pure everything is pure but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure in fact both their mind and conscience are conscience are defiled Go ahead and read verse 16. That's a good one, too. Okay. It says 16. They said, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Oof, duh. So then again, our, our human depravity, absolutely oof, duh, indeed. Our, our sinful nature has impacted uh, our capacity to live holy lives. It's incapacitated our, mm-hmm. even our our our. our ability to see certain truths but it doesn't say that it's it's impacted our ability to respond 
to certain mm-hmm. truths. So um, let's take a look at how the will is even enslaved in Romans six twenty. Okay. okay. So tw- verse twenty: For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So here again, we we are enslaved to our passions. I think uh, Thomas Aquinas would would call it our desires. We mm-hmm. are we are enslaved to our desires and our our our, our passions, those things uh, which drive us. And when our desires are based upon material things, our desires are based upon the baser things of life. Then we can't live holy lives. So no one in this discussion is claiming that we can save ourselves because the scripture tells us that we can't save ourselves. Our intelligence is blinded. Our mind is corrupted. Our emotions are degraded. Our will is enslaved. So Mm -hmm. there's no way that we can save ourselves. But the question is when the Lord speaks to us and the Lord moves, are we able to respond? And for that, we need to, we see several passages of scripture that call for repentance. What does repentance mean? In Greek, it's metanoia. It's an about face, 180 degree turn. You're going down mm-hmm. one direction and you decide you turn around and go down in a, a completely different direction. It's a repentance, it's a transformation, a change that happens. Let's see what the Lord has to say about this in Isaiah 31, verse 6. Yeah, this is good. So verse 6 says, return to the one the Israelites have greatly rebelled against. Verse 7, for on on that day, every one of you will reject worthless idols of silver and gold that your own hands have sinfully made. So catch the picture here. God, Yahweh, is speaking to the Israelites, to people caught in sin, now, he, he's saying, return to me because the Israelites were the chosen people. It's not that those people had received God or his or, or received his grace, but he's calling to them, return to me, repent, return to me. For every, on that day, you will reject these worthless idols. Again, response, respond to the grace of God. Uh, now, let's take a look at, uh, at uh, Jeremiah in chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. There it is. So 10, verse 10. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous, her treacherous sister, Judah, did not, didn't return to me with all her heart, only in, in pretense. This is the Lord's declaration. Yep. Verse 11. The Lord announced to me, unfaithful Israel has shown herself more righteous than the treacherous Judah. Verse 12, go proclaim these words to the north and say, return, unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord, your God. You have scattered your favors, strangers, under every green tree and have not obeyed me. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 14, 
Return, you faithless children. This is the Lord's declaration, for I am your master, and I will take you, one, from a city, and two, from a family. And I will bring you to Zion. I will Zion. give you shepherds. Yeah. I will give you I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me and they will shepherd you. With with, with knowledge and skill. So so yep. here again, it's clear God is speaking to a rebellious people, calling mm-hmm. them to repent, calling them to return to him, and, and he would even bring them to Zion, which is the holy city of God, in many right. ways speaking of the mountain of God, maybe New Jerusalem. There may be an element uh, where you, we're seeing uh, eternity. Uh, so, but let's, let's, let's see whether or not a person has an opportunity to reject God's grace. And so let's turn to Amos 4, verses 6 through 10. <laughs> yeah. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. <laughs> this is the Lord's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you. For there was still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, Sorry. but no <laughs> rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew and locust. Locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like Egypt, like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stretch or the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, here again, we can say that that's part of the permissive will of God, because you know. But uh, but anyhow, nonetheless, he's bring, judgment has come. Judgment mm-hmm. has come to the land. He's trying to get their attention. He's using this as a means to bring them back uh, in, in His grace or, or extend His grace to them. But yet they refused and they rejected freely rejected. The grace of God. Now let's take a look at uh, Zechariah, mm-hmm. Zechariah uh, chapter one, verses two through four. And here we're going to see that God appeals. Uh, we're going to see God's appeal for the people to turn to Him. Mm-hmm. It says the Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people this is what the Lord of Armies says: Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to. Oh, uh, I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them. This is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Do you mind reading that last sentence? Yeah, it says, but they did not listen or pay attention to me. 
So is that not saying that God's grace is given to people and trying to bring them in and people have the free response to either respond or reject Mm -hmm. uh, to the grace of God? That seems fairly clear. (laughs) Yeah, seems fairly clear. Uh, And and let's take a look at Isaiah uh, 55. Verses one through seven. Um, So verse 55, uh, one through seven, it says, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, you without silver, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food? And your wages on what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention. Yep. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry. (laughs) Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make permanent covenant with you. There you go. I will make permanent covenant with you on the basis of of the faithful kindness of David since I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. So you will, you will summon a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you will run to for the Lord, your God, Uh, even the Holy one of Israel has glorified you. Let me scroll up here. Okay. All right, here we go. Here we go. Yep. Verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his ways and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. That's a mic drop moment right there. Isaiah just dropped the mic. I mean, he just... What else to be said? Well, it gets better. Uh, let's 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 take a look over at John uh, three verses. Uh, well, let's go ahead and do verses fourteen through twenty one. I mean, I know time's getting away from us, but hey, we're reading. So, verse fourteen. Are you ready? Did I lose you? Oh, man. Well, I'm going to read it. Just, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Yeah. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, electronic. <laughs> well, I tell you, isn't it funny that we get going with Scripture and then all of a sudden something like that happens? Mm-hmm. Let's pull this up. I saw you, <laughs> and then I couldn't get back to the Zoom. I didn't know exactly what happened there. Uh, all right. So, yeah, John yeah, 3. Fourteen. 
Okay, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. One is not is not uh, condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness. Yeah, love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So here again, just like Isaiah 50, 55, we see a clear appeal, not just, I mean, I know a lot of people will say, well, you guys just focus on John three sixteen all the time. It's not just John three sixteen; It's the totality of the context in verses, uh, in verses uh, through 14 through 21. We see mm-hmm. this appeal to repent. Uh, God's grace is given. Repent, turn to the Lord, and your sins will be forgiven. Um, let, let's take a look, look at a couple look, more passages at, of Scripture. Look at verse 21 real quick, Brian. Oh, sure. Let, let me just read that. Verse 21. I'll read the first part of it. I can read like 21a, or I guess I can read the whole thing. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown and accomplished by God. There you go. Another mic drop moment. <laughs> So uh, we're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but I want us to take a look at just a couple more scriptures just to really, as we present this case, uh, let's take a look at uh, in Acts 3.19, the call for repentance and turn back so that sins are atoned. Let's take a look at uh, 3.19. Yeah, so it says, therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Go and do verse 20. That seasons of refreshing may come to the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, who has appointed for you as the Messiah. So, <laughs> all right, one more, one more. This is the last one that we'll read tonight. Uh, and then we're going we're gonna to reference a few other things, but this will be the last one we read tonight. Acts 26, verse 20. Mm-hmm. So verse 20, um, instead, I preach to those. What's that? This is Paul speaking. Yes, Paul speaking. Instead, I preach to those in Damascus first, to those in Jerusalem and and all in the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. Another one that um, came to mind was um, when Peter, uh, uh, now I'm drawing blanks, came, he saw the vision and it said, uh, you know, uh, go, Peter, kill and eat. And he went to um, uh, the centurion's um, home and you and you had said, can people turn to God before they've uh, before they're saved? Right there's a picture of it because when Peter showed up, he preached the gospel to them and they were saved. 
So, yeah, examples abound in Scripture. So we see uh, examples of repentance, including Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we see Cornelius, and that, I'm not sure if that was the one you were mentioning. Yep, that's, the, that's the one, yep. The, yeah, so Cornelius, uh, this is in Acts chapter 10. Lydia, Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. The Philippian jailer in Acts 16, verses 25 through 34. Yep. So these are examples of individuals who heard the message of the gospel. God's grace was applied to them, and they responded positively to scripture, whereas we even saw evidence of, in, of individuals in the Old Testament days who heard the message of the gospel, God's grace was given to them, and they rejected. What even about, let's, let's not even, that's not even taken into consideration. Think about the rich young ruler. Mm-hmm. He wanted to know the way of eternal life. He comes mm-hmm. to Jesus. Jesus gives him the, the way to be no saved. Way. Right. And what did he do? Mm-hmm. Turned and walked away. Yeah. So it was his free decision to respond to the grace of God. So all things considered, all things considered, the totality of Scripture indicates that at least divine guidance is the preferred model. But I think a deeper exploration of the nature and work of God's interactions with the world, that is where we see, you know, evidence, in my opinion, of the doctrine of middle knowledge. But but all that being said, I think there is a clear picture of at least divine guidance. The idea of complete divine determinism, in my opinion, is not warranted in the passages of Scripture. And understand, we did not read just a few Scriptures. We read a bunch of Scriptures in both the Old and New Testament. So we're left yeah. with a similar conclusion that scholar Daryl Box surmised, saying the following. He said, in the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, and I quote, in the New Testament, Daryl Box says, conversion seems to summarize the call of the church in response to Jesus's commission to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations, as the Old Testament called for. In sum, conversion is a turning to embrace God, end of quote. Hmm. So, I mean, honestly, if we look at the, the scriptures we read, and, and there are many others that can be mentioned, I think, quite frankly, we see a case to be made that, yes, we are depraved. We cannot save ourselves, but that does not mean that we, that we can't respond to God's grace. So I think a, there's a good, strong case, in, a biblical case, in favor of radical depravity rather than total depravity. Yeah. So Brian, why why is this why is this uh discussion so important then? You know, I know a lot of people may be listening to this, watching this online. I know we we had a little glitch with our our uh, with our with the stream a while ago. Um and and I know a lot of people are wondering, and this is some deep theological stuff. I mean, is this really even important is this really even necessary to discuss well it actually is it's important on several fronts number one it impacts the nature of evangelism do do we believe that people can respond to the gospel call and if we don't why are we doing it you say well we're we're Mm -hmm. obeying the command of god well that's well and good but it loses its impact it loses its impact i think that if you hold that people can respond to the grace of god given to them 
it it further intensifies the need for evangelism. Now we know God saves. We know He's the one that saves, or we don't save ourselves. But it intensifies the importance of evangelism. Number two is the nature of discipleship. Do our actions matter? Does it matter that we're growing in our relationship with the Lord? I mean, or, or are we just in the back seat and have no, no, um, we have no decision making. We, we can't do anything. We can't help grow our relationship with the Lord. We're just passive agents along for the ride. Well, if you believe that, uh, we have that freedom to respond to God's grace and that our actions matter, then we're going to want to have closer rela- a closer relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Number three, it impacts the nature of God, how we view God. If you believe that God's in control of everything and something awful happens to you or some evil tragedy takes place, then you're going to view God in a very negative light. By the way, this is an aspect of de- determinism that I have yet to hear anyone argue for successfully. There has been no, as far as I've heard from from what I've heard out there, there has been no positive response given by divine determinists, determinists for the goodness of God when considering that when they believe that God is responsible for every good or bad thing that happens. it I think it damages the nature of God. Hmm. Number four, the nature of sin. If, if you believe that everything's predetermined and that you can do you, – you can't do anything except what is pre-planned for you to do – then again, you're a passive agent, and then so instead of taking responsibility for your actions, you're going to blame God. Number five is the nature of eschatology. Uh, can we trust God and his word? Can we trust that God is in control? Now, this is kind of going from divine determinism to more open theistic uh, concepts. If we don't believe that God has complete knowledge of all things, and is able to control things to bring about certain ends, then we have no real confidence that prophecies that were given will be fulfilled. Number six, it it impacts the nature of faith. Do we believe that God is truly a good, loving, benevolent God? Do we truly believe that he wants and desires the very best for us? Do we really believe that he's working to bring something good in the end? And then lastly, it impacts the nature of salvation. There are so many people out there who are incapacitated, who are paralyzed even by by the whole worry that comes around or comes about by uh, wondering whether or not they're part of the elect of God or not. But even if even if divine determinism is true, even if you're not the elected, there's nothing you can do about it to the otherwise. So it's it's basically a crapshoot. Either you've been chosen to be saved by God or you're not. But where's the love of God in that? Mm-hmm. Where's the kindness, loving kindness of God in that? What, where, where is the where's the love to say that a person is born, they're, they're condemned to hell, and they can't do anything otherwise? They can't respond to the grace of God given to them because it's never given. I just really have a problem with that. Uh, I, I I have some very ma- I have some major concerns with that image of God. Mm. So seven major not, things that I, that I think are problematic or that are important to this discussion. Yeah. 
one one question that that maybe we can ponder today and we can move on to but what would be the effectualism or the the purpose of uh of the cross then if if it was already determined that that's what was going to be did he was he on the cross for all or was he on the cross for some or was he on the cross for the ones that he's just dying for I'm going to pause my response to that question because we're going to actually cover that in the upcoming podcast. Okay, good. A couple here about a week or two, I think. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, there you go, folks. Um, we kind of went a little long and uh, I hope that you've uh, enjoyed it. So, but we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending that time together with us. And we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and becomes a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and become a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friend. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com. Coming to you this summer, we bring to you a brand new feature here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. We're calling it the Bellator Christie Podcast Overtime. And this will feature a handful of episodes that will come to you this summer, which should last anywhere between 5 to 15 minutes. And this, these shows will discuss issues of the day that we just simply don't have time to cover during the regular season of Bellator Christie. Uh, these shows will be short intimate and we'll just feature a very brief conversation on the topics at hand and try to provide you solutions to these different difficult issues so catch the bellator christie overtime edition this summer between the regular seasons and you can only catch the bellator christie overtime show right here where you're listening to this current podcast it won't be found on facebook not on youtube but only where the audio edition of the bellator christie podcast is found so we hope you'll join us this summer for the bellator christie overtime show